Good morning. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. If I were to ask you to explain to me what it means to you to love someone, how would you answer that? Now, if we were talking about this idea in the framework of immediate family, we probably would be able to add definition or idea to that rather quickly. For example, to love my wife means to receive from her. I love something, I gain something from it. To love my wife means that I am receiving enjoyment from her personality. It means that I'm receiving enjoyment from her sense of humor. It means that I'm receiving enjoyment from the way that she determines she's going to do something and then has the iron will to back it up. I draw enjoyment from how she makes the family unit so central in her life. I draw enjoyment from that way that she does the pig snort when she snores in the middle of the night. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's just an even snore. It's, there's no... <laughs> yes, I'm in trouble. <clears throat> to love my wife is to not only receive from her, but it's also to give to her as well. I love her, so therefore I want to give to her. I want to meet her needs, whatever they may be. I want her to feel secure. I want to meet her spiritual needs as well as I attempt to minister to those. So all of us who are in the framework or live in the framework of being married, we can identify with the aspect of giving and receiving in relation to love in marriage. But now maybe we're a little bit less familiar about what it means to love in the framework of a local church. We know it's a mandate. We know that John 13.35 informs us that by this they will know you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. We get the idea that it's a command but are we real familiar with it as a practice or the implementation of what love may look like in this context? Are we aware of what that may look like? Especially when we take into account the fact that Jesus says that we're to love each other the way that He loves us. Now what that does is that makes the love that we're supposed to have for each other very intentional. That means that I am to love you the way that Christ loves you. Now what that means is that my actions toward you have the goal of leading you away from yourself and closer toward the cross of Christ. That's the purpose of the love of God in the framework of a local church. Move far away from yourselves, as far away from yourselves as you can, and move closer to the cross and see and uncover and discover the riches of 
the gospel. That's the idea we want to talk about this morning. As I invite you to please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This morning we're going to go through the field of verses 5 through 8. Next week we'll glean a little bit more fruit from verses 5 through 11. But let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we're, as we come to you this morning, God, we are, we're taken aback as we see the depth and degree of the love that you have for your people. We're, we're aware of our sinfulness and we, we would wonder why, God, that you would take such measures. Why you would free yourself from the privileges of deity and take on the form of a servant for our sake. But not only are we taken aback by you, God, but we are instructed by you. We don't just read this passage and say, wow, you've given us such occasion to worship you and glorify in you, although you've done that. But we read this passage and we're confronted with the reality that, God, this is how you call us to live. And we need help. We need grace. We need mercy. We need empowered. We need each other. So we're praying for unity this morning, Lord. That you would help us to walk the way that you've called us to walk. That we too, as we look to the cross, we too would be servants. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to I want to look at this passage this morning through the lens of biblical love. How does love look at this passage and respond? How do we, who are called to love each other, look at this passage and respond to this passage of Scripture? Now, I want to, I want to suggest that biblical love seeks the mind of Christ. And then I want to suggest that biblical love directs us to the life of Christ. So let's look at the first idea first. Biblical love seeks the mind of Christ. Notice that Paul says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So immediately we are confronted with the intention of biblical love as relates to this passage at least. The Apostle Paul lays out before us the work that He's called us to do. He's laid out the task of us giving ourselves to the mind of Christ. 
not only individually, but on a corporate level as well. Why? What's the issue? What's He calling us to strive for? The issue is unity. And in order for there to be unity among us in the framework of this local church, we must adopt and conform to the mind of Christ, which means that we're calling each other as far away from ourselves as we possibly can, and we're running to the cross. We are counting each other as more significant than ourselves. That's the purpose of biblical love in the framework of a local church. In this passage, the Apostle Paul, he's not addressing issues. He's not offering his counsel for the purpose of putting out fires or for the purpose of modifying the behavior of the Philippian church. He is addressing issues. He is giving his counsel because of the deep-rooted love that he has in his heart for these people and everything that he says pours out of that well of deep-rooted love. What does that mean? It means that he cares about the way that they think. He cares so much more about the surface of their character. He cares about the way that they think. He cares that their thought patterns are consistent with the thought patterns of Christ. He cares that their thought patterns are consistent with the mind of Christ to the Apostle Paul and to us, beloved. That is the evidence that they and we are clinging to the gospel of our salvation. It's the evidence of whether or not we are subordinate to that gospel by the way that we cling to that gospel, by the way that our minds are subordinate to the mind of Christ, by the way that our lives are subordinate to the life of Christ. That's what true biblical love does. That's how true biblical love instructs. If I truly, truly love my children, I'm not going to just teach them to conform to a standard. That may be a part of it, but it's not just that. If that's all I'm teaching my children is just to conform to a standard, if that's what they're gaining from me, then what standard do they conform to when they run off to WVU? What standard do they conform to as they develop new friendships and new relationships? If we truly love each other, just like we would truly love our children, we're teaching them to, we're teaching them to submit their thoughts to the thoughts of Christ. We are teaching them by addressing their be, not just addressing their behavior, but by addressing their hearts. That's what biblical love does. And according to Paul, the starting place for that is to address the way that they think. That's why we don't just say, you don't do this. But instead we say, listen, what's going on in your heart that would cause you to respond that way? Let's talk about that. Now the issue of concern for Paul is one of unity. Now let's remember what Paul has done. Paul has spent time with Epaphroditus. They spent time together. Paul has gathered information from him. And the Apostle Paul has come to the conclusion that the unity of the church needs strength. That's why he instructs 
the way he does in verse 27 of chapter 1 when he says, stand firm in one spirit. Strive side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And if we back up to chapter 2, verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul continuing to urge and to continue to press the idea of unity. Back up with me and let's read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. Paul says this. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. There's that aspect of unity. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Wow, how how much of unity is he cultivating here? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And I have to be quite frank, the demand that Paul is placing on us is quite high. I look at that as a matter of fact, and I'm thinking, I can't do that. That's not in me to do that. Now, I would say that Paul is suggesting this is the way we're to live, period. This should be defining our lives in our homes. So I struggle to live up to and rise up to this demand in my home. And now the Apostle Paul is saying, this is how we are to live and function among each other. But but how? How can we do this? Paul starts by addressing the way we think. And he addresses the way we think by pointing to the way that Christ thinks. He addresses the way we think by pointing to the mind of Christ. You see, the reality is, the only way that we can rise up to the demand of counting each other more significant than ourselves is to lower our view of ourselves. That is why the Apostle Paul necessarily petitions the Philippian church regarding unity by first addressing the way that they think. We are seemingly bombarded with books, articles, avenues of thought, even from a Christian perspective that would suggest that the chief reason that we find ourselves struggling in relationships, the chief, way, the chief reason that we find ourselves struggling emotionally, the chief reason that we find ourselves dealing with any type of insecurities or any type of conflicts, whether they be internal and of ourselves, or whether they be among a group of people, is because of a lack of self-esteem. In other words, the reason that you can't get along with people is because you don't think highly enough of yourself. Now, listen, don't get me wrong here. Because I'm not referring to the desire to want to invest much-needed time into ourselves. Listen, as a matter of fact, I wish that as I stood before you this morning, I was about 40 pounds lighter. Okay, now, And the reality is, I need to invest much-needed time into that effort. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the need to be free from a very wrong, negative self-image because 
growing up, dad was always tearing down instead of building up and affirming. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an idea that is damaging to the gospel because it tempts us to focus on cultivating confidence in ourselves rather than cultivating confidence in the gospel. I'm talking about an idea that tempts us to cultivate and focus on the worth of self rather than the worth of the cross. I'm talking about a cultural press, a cultural emphasis that focuses on cultivating and catering to the worth of self rather than following the Savior's instructions of dying to self. I'm reminded of my pre-conversion days. Okay, and this just is validation of how the mind latches onto things. Can you, can you testify to that? Do you remember? Isn't it amazing how you can hear something? A song, for example, that you haven't heard since high school and you know every word? I'm reminded of my pre-conversion days. I see Al Franken taking on the role of Stuart Smalley in an SNL skit. And he's looking in the mirror and he's having to repeat to himself, over and over and over and over because of his lack of self-esteem. And he says it in this nerdy little lisp. I can do this. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And by golly, people like me. But the reality is, even though that is something that may be said in jest, look, that's kind of the mindset that we can bring in the framework of the local church except we flip-flop it a little bit maybe, and we say something like, people like me because I'm good enough in this area. People like me because I perform well in this area. But Paul tells us that there is a different way to think, a different way that we have to strive to think. As a matter of fact, the word mind, it means to strive to think. So Paul is telling us there is a way in the framework of the Christian church, that we must strive to think. And notice that he calls us to strive to think corporately. He doesn't call us to strive to think alone. The Apostle Paul does not call on individuals to imitate Christ in the privacy of their prayer closets. The Apostle Paul calls on the community to imitate Christ as individuals who happen to live among a community of believers so that we're cultivating the mind of Christ, yes, on an individual basis, but collectively as well. His aim is to form collective minds that develop collective thoughts that lead to collective actions. How? Well, I believe that biblical love points us to the life of Christ as well. Let's go back and start in verse 6 again and reread. Verse 6. Speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we start out by asking, what does biblical love look like as it begins to unfold 
in the context of the Christian community. We're seeing biblical love begin to unfold as we begin to see its very intentional purpose. And the intentional purpose of biblical love is that we would live our lives for others. That we would count others more significant than ourselves. See, we, why are we here? Why are we seeking unity? Why are we seeking to come together and cultivate a unified mind so that we can count others more significant than ourselves, so that we are making the good of others the emphasis of our ministry, so that we're making the good of others the emphasis of what's taking place in this local church, so that we're making the good of others the emphasis of every aspect of the Christian life that we live. So if my wife comes to me, for example, it's been a long day at work, I've dealt with many people, I'm stressed out because I've dealt with many people in many different moods. And my wife comes to me and she says, Moon, I need to talk. Can we talk for a while? Or, Moon, my emotional tank is running a little bit empty. I need to talk to you a couple hours about feelings. What's my responsibility? My responsibility is to count her and her need as more significant than my desire to be left undisturbed. That's my responsibility. How do I do that? What's my motivation? Listen, the motivation is Jesus' life. The motivation is looking to the cross of Christ where Jesus counted us as more significant than He did Himself. The motivation is to adopt and conform and submit to the mind of Christ. Now please, as we talk about this idea, I beg of you, do not detach the deity of Christ Himself from this idea. Do not view the Savior as less than God as He is. Because the moment that we do that, which we can be tempted to do, even if it's indirectly, the moment that we do that, this idea of Christ counting us as more significant than he did himself the moment we the moment we detach his deity from him at this moment this idea becomes less breathtaking this idea becomes less instructive this idea becomes less corrective it becomes less inspiring it becomes less of an example as a matter of fact in verse 6 in the original greek the word equality is in a plural form, and it reads this way. Christ did not count His equalities with God as a thing to be grasped or held onto. Paul wants us to know. Paul wants us to remember that the divine attributes that define the Father are the same divine attributes that are intact and define the Son of God. Christ is majestic. Christ is omnipotent. Christ is omniscient. Christ is changeless. Christ is timeless. Christ is the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe and the whole earth along with all of creation is in complete harmony as they sing of His endless glory. And yet, Christ does not consider it something to hold tightly to because He considers us to be of more value than He does Himself. Now, 
If there's any time that you're struggling with dealing with people, if there's any time that you're struggling with how to serve or love your wife, if there's any time that you're struggling with how to possibly submit to your parents or any other type of authority, if there's any time that you find yourself disgruntled because of where God may have you at any given time, listen, beloved, reflect and refer and run to the cross of Christ and watch Him count us as more significant than Himself. That's the purpose of the cross. Not only our redemption, but our ongoing God, you are amazing. Paul says that Christ emptied Himself, but know something. When Christ emptied Himself, it wasn't something that Christ gave up. It was something that Christ purposely put on, took on Himself. Christ did not give up His deity, but while He was deity, He emptied Himself of His divine rights and His heavenly privileges, and He took on the role of a servant, and He counted us more significant than He did Himself. Be amazed at that. Be amazed at the God of heaven and earth who said, you are more significant than my son. We look to the cross, it's as if in that moment in time when Christ is dying, God loved us more than He loved His own Son. And there's an element of truth to that because He counted us as more significant than His own Son at that moment, at that time. J.B. Lightfoot says, Be humble as Christ was humble. He, though existing before the worlds in the form of God, did not treat His equality with God as a prize. He did not treat His equality with God as a treasure to be greedily clutched and ostentatiously displayed. On the contrary, He resigned the glories of heaven. The issue is not, are we more significant? The issue is not, were we before the foundations of the world more significant? That's not the issue. We can answer that very easily. That's a no-brainer. It's not, are we more, were we more significant? The issue is that God counted us as more significant than Himself. That's what biblical love does. Biblical love counts others as more significant than ourselves, regardless of whether they are more significant than us. Biblical love sees the worth of others over the worth of ourselves, regardless of their real worth. Husbands, do you view your wives as of greater significance than you do yourself? Sure you do. I would say you do. Say every man in here who's a husband would say, I would quickly, gladly give my life for my wife. Parents, fathers, mothers, do you count your children and the lives of your children more significant than you do your own life? Of course you do. Of course you do. But why? I mean, if it were possible, and if we could take your life, dad, husband, put it on one side of the scale and place your wife or your child on the other end of the scale 
I mean, really, what is it about them that would cause the scale to tip in their favor? Are they less of a sinner than you are? No. Are, are they more of a saint than you are? Absolutely not. So the reality is, it's really not about the worth. It's not about the reality that they have greater worth. It's about the fact that you have counted them as having greater worth. You have chosen to have a love for them that overshadows your love for yourself. And that is how God calls us to live in community. And how do we do that? We do that by pointing each other to the cross and by reminding ourselves of the gospel's great reach into our hearts. God counted us as more significant than himself and we didn't deserve that. John Piper says it this way. <clears throat> Christ loved us and died for us and forgave us and accepted us and justified us and gave us eternal life and made us heirs of the world when He owed us nothing. He treated us as worthy of His service when we were not worthy of His service at all. He took thought not only for His own interests, but for ours. God counted us as greater than Himself. Who is the greater, He said, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But what did Jesus say? But I am among you as the one who serves. That is where our humility comes from. We feel overwhelmed by God's grace. By gone grace in the cross and moment by moment arriving grace promised for our everlasting future. Christians are stunned into lowliness. Freely you have been served. Now, freely go and serve. Makes sense. As we talk about service, as we talk about serving, it's the typical life of the Christian church, but it's one of the things that we're specifically and purposely celebrating this morning. Yeah, I'd like for the elders to join me here at the, at the front, if we can. We're talking about serving the church. And um, one of the ways that, that the early church in Acts chapter 6, um, when they had a division that rose up and they had some things that need to be done as far as the distribution of food and they needed people to be able to do that in a godly way, in a tactful way, they chose deacons. Paul in 1 Timothy and, and um, other passages in Titus really kind of mark out more specific qualities of these men. The Providence Bible Church, uh, the elders have met together and identified two men that we want to honor today um, 
as deacons, we want to recognize men who have been serving in this capacity already. The greatest is the one who serves. I'm going to wait for the children to to come in here because I want to speak to the children specifically um, this morning. Let me read. Let me read a passage. Let me read this passage of scripture to you while we're waiting for our children to to rejoin us. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Here, it's not right to neglect the apostles' teaching. It's not right to neglect the study of God's Word to do this daily distribution of food. So, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will return, we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we are give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Children, if you have been around Providence Bible Church for very long, you will see two men for sure that stand out as men who serve this church. Um, let me ask the elders to come on up here and join me. And um, Stephen, Will, if you could join us too. You will, you will figure out quickly um, two men who make sure lights are on, who um, take care of various and a variety of, of sundry things that you, you know nothing about, about the finances of this church, about taking care of you know, making sure our bills get paid, making sure they're reaching out to people in this, in this congregation that have needs. These men that you see in front of you have worked tirelessly, um, and with very little applause. And I just want to take a second, and one of the reasons you'll see us dressed up today is we want to set this apart. We want to say this is different. We want to lay hands on these two men and and say to you guys as a congregation that these are deacons at Providence Bible Church. Children, the greatest among you, as Moon just said, are the people who serve. People who serve children. Look up to these men as people who serve this church. Look up to people, um, look up to these deacons as people who take care of so many things. Pay attention sometime, and you'll notice Steve and Will right in the mix of it. And let me just let me give a um, let me just give a encouragement to all of us. You know, if you're not serving as a deacon or an elder at Providence Bible Church, and you're interested in doing that, come and talk to us. Um, we do want to identify people who are willing to serve the church. Uh, people who who stand out as people who are um, full of the spirit 
and who hold fast to the Word of God and to prayer, um, please help us. There are many hands make, make light work. But I also want to just say to you, children, notice that these are families that really serve us. These men just represent their families. If you know the amount of, of, of time that goes into, again, simple setup, um, these men aren't the only ones that are doing that. Uh, their families, their children are serving. It's wonderful to serve the church. And let me just say this too as an aside. You don't have to have an office. You don't have to hold an office in a church to lead. We are all called to be deacons. Male, female, children. And you can make a difference in this church by serving other people. And I don't just mean setting up food, although that's specifically what's talked about here in the Scripture. But when you minister grace to other people in this congregation, you are a deacon. You are a servant. 